Now, um, when Pete and I first thought about um, this sermon series in Matthew, we were coming out of the first lockdown and we're thinking to ourselves, how do you be church? How do you do church when there are so many restrictions and, and we can't be back to normal where we've got to, everyone's got to wear masks and there's no congregational singing and there's no kids' work and there's no mingling before and afterwards? And you know, when you strip it all away, or at least when a lot of your freedoms are stripped away, what lies at the very heart of Christian discipleship? And that's why we chose the Gospel of Matthew, precisely because of its focus on discipleship, of following Jesus Christ as our teacher and king and obeying everything that he commanded us. And today, in today's passage, chapter 18, we come to Jesus' central teaching on relationships within the church. Precisely these questions, how do you be church? How do you do church? whatever the circumstances we face. So it feels like the timing of this passage could not be better for us. This is the fourth um, teaching block in Matthew's Gospel. Remember, there are five teaching blocks reflecting the five books of the law. And five times in our passage today, Jesus says, truly, I tell you. Verse 3, verse 10, Verse 13, verses 18, verse 19. And whenever Jesus uses this phrase, truly I tell you, he is wanting to underline the importance of what he's about to say. This teaching on relationships in the church, it is so important. This is how I want you to be. This is how you are to relate to one another. This is what I'm looking for in every local church, in every one of my followers. Be like this, live like this, do life together like this. And it's actually in our passage today that the word church comes up in verse 17. Did you know this is only one of two places in all four Gospels where the word church, gathering people together, comes up? And the other place also in Matthew's Gospel in chapter 16. So if we're thinking to ourselves, look, what does Jesus expect of us as we're into this second lockdown? How are we to support one another? How are we to care for one another? How are we to be church, do church together? Here we have it. Jesus is clear, important teaching for us. Laid out for us in chapter 18. Four aspects to it. First, the need for lowliness. The need for lowliness. Let me read from verse 1. And this is what Andy picked up on in the all-age talk. At that time, the disciples came to Jesus and asked, who then is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? Now, in first century Palestine, greatness was often determined by your position in society. The people with money, with power, with influence. Think of kings. Think of wealthy families. Think of the ruling religious elite, high government officials. Well, amongst Jesus' disciples, there are not many of them. And so the disciples are thinking to themselves, who then is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? Who is going to have the positions of power? And immediately, Jesus turns their concept of greatness completely upside down. In verse 2, he calls a little child to him and places the child among them And he says, truly I tell you, unless you change and become like little children, you will never enter 
the kingdom of heaven. Therefore, whoever takes the lowly position of this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Now, we need to be careful here not to misunderstand Jesus' use of a little child as an illustration. Because little child, three, four years old, immature, gullible. Um, Little children can be selfish, can throw temper tantrums. I've seen plenty of those in my time. Clearly, Jesus is not saying to be like that. What he says here is he's focusing on position, status, whoever takes the lowly position of this child. An attitude of heart which does not strive for power and influence over others, but actually humbly accepts the position they are in and seeks to serve others. That's what Jesus is talking about with this illustration of a little child. That's what true greatness is. That's what it means to be a member of his kingdom. In other words, there should be no jockeying for positions of power within the church. No fighting over positions of leadership. No asserting yourselves over others. And certainly no thinking that we are better than anyone else. That may be how the world works, Jesus says. But it is not how the kingdom of heaven works. Anyone who belongs to me, anyone who belongs to my kingdom is a sinner saved by grace. No one greater than anyone else. Now, of course, that does not mean that we can't discern the gifts that God has given us. And some of those gifts are gifts of leadership, gifts to be used and exercised in service of others. But it is not something we should be striving after in a bid for our own greatness. Archbishop William Temple once said, I have never sought a position of greater responsibility and I have never refused a position of greater responsibility. I've never sought a position of greater responsibility, humbly accepting the position he is in, but he's also never refused a position of responsibility if that is where God is calling him to. Do you see the need for lowliness? So different to how we naturally think and live. Vying, fighting, competing, comparing. Want to be seen as mature, want to be seen as the godly one. Striving after positions of influence in the church and spy group leader. Up front on Sundays. Dreaming of a, of a bigger church and more people and more significance. And aren't we great? And Jesus saying, no. You've got it completely back to front. You need to be lowly. You need to be humble. You need to be serving others just as I have served you. And on this day of all days, Remembrance Sunday, what do we remember? Jesus Christ on the cross, laying down all his power, his influence, in his significance, sacrificing himself for our own salvation, for our own position, status in the kingdom of heaven, the greatest status any person could ever have.
Well, if that is the first vital characteristic that Jesus looks for in his church, the second is this, the avoidance of sin. Now, I know this can sound somewhat somber and somewhat puritanical, the avoidance of sin, but, but do you see, did you pick up the, the strength of language that Jesus used in these verses about those who cause others to sin or they, or they themselves sin? Verse 6, if anyone causes one of these little ones, that is those who believe in me. So he's not talking about little children because it was an illustration of anyone who believes in him. If anyone cause any other believer to stumble into sin, it would be better for them to have a large millstone hung round their neck and to be drowned in the depths of the sea. Do you see what I mean about just the strength of language coming from the lips of Jesus here? He continues in verse 7. Woe to the world because of the things that cause people to stumble. Such things must come. But woe to the person through whom they come. Woe, a word of judgment on anyone who causes another to sin. And not just causing others to sin, but our own personal individual sin. In verses 8 to 9, Jesus talks about cutting off your hand, your foot, your eye. Anything that causes you to stumble. Cut it straight off. Better for you to enter life maimed or crippled than to be thrown into the eternal fire of hell. Now, these are Jesus' words. These are not my words. I take no pleasure in talking about these things. But it shows just how seriously Jesus takes Sin in his church, in each local body of believers. Jesus longs for his church to be a place of love and forgiveness and truth and grace and mercy and peace and safety and anything that would detract from that, that would hinder that, that would threaten that. You have to deal with it ruthlessly as if cutting off one of your own limbs. Now, straight away, can I please say that this is metaphorical language that Jesus is using here. Jesus does not mean to literally cut off a part of your body, although most famously you may have heard of a guy called Origen who took these words seriously and castrated himself um, to deal with lust and probably regretted the decision afterwards when he realized lust actually comes from the, the heart. So, so don't do that. But the point that Jesus is making here with this imagery, the strength of it is just the decisive action that we must take not to cause others to sin or ourselves to sin. Spreading gossip, being lazy, grumbling or complaining, asking someone to do something we know is wrong. And Jesus says, cut it completely out of your life. 
Remember when we were living in uh, South London in a previous church, there was a tree in our back garden with a branch that was uh, diseased and we called up the arborist and he came over. He said, how long has it been like this? And we said, oh no, we've, we've just moved in recently as tenants. It looked a little bit wrong, so we thought we'd get you in to have a look at it. Because just as well you called because this branch is so diseased that there is a threat, not just that it falls off and could fall into the house, but actually that the disease could spread to the rest of the tree and completely kill it all with an even greater danger to your house. And this is the sort of picture that Jesus is using here in verses 5 to 9. Dealing ruthlessly with, cutting off anything that would threaten the overall spiritual health of the church. Now, you will know where you most tend to stumble. And if you haven't done so already, let me urge you to seek help, to tell it to others close to you, bring it into the light, receive prayer, and cut it out of your life, not just for your own sake, but for the sake of the whole body of Christ. Well, the third vital characteristic that Jesus looks for in his church is a pastoral concern for everybody. This is verses 10 to 14, and in verse 10, Jesus says, see that you do not despise one of these little ones. Not one, anyone who believes in me. And then he gives this parable which we often know in an evangelistic context in Luke, this is a pastoral context within the church where he says, what do you think if a man owns a hundred sheep and one of them wanders away, will he not leave the 99 on the hills and go to look for the one that wandered off? And if he finds it, truly I tell you, he is happier about that one sheep than about the 99 that did not wander off. In the same way, your father in heaven is not willing that any of these little ones should perish. Now, what do you think? That's the question Jesus asks us. I have to admit, I first thought, well, isn't it a little bit silly to leave the 99, to go off just to find one? I mean, doesn't put that the 99 in danger? And if you're looking for that other one, might some of these 99 get lost? And I suppose the answer is, well, yes, there, there is a danger. But it shows the absolute commitment that Jesus Christ has to every single one of his followers. He's not saying that he does not rejoice over the 99 who are safe. He is not saying that he is less delighted in the 99, but he is saying there is a special, there's a peculiar joy about bringing one who is lost back into the fold. The one who is struggling with their faith the one who is racked with doubt, the one who is stumbling into sin, the one who is no longer connecting with Inspire Groups online or church online and seems to be slowly drifting away. And Jesus says, go seek them out. Pray, pray, pray. Help, help, help. Do anything you can to bring them back into the fold. And can I say, um, yet again, you're probably hearing this a lot from, from Peter and I at the moment, this is why Inspire Groups are so important. 
especially at a time like this in a second lockdown. Even in normal times, a church of our size, very hard for Pete and I to have you know, effective, deep relationships with all 200 adults or so that we are members of Inspire St. James. But during a lockdown, when we can't even meet together in church, I can't even see you. I'm looking at a camera screen here. I don't know how you are doing. But Inspire groups, smaller groups of up to 15, we can much more easily look out for one another. Make sure no one is getting lost. No one is wandering away. No one is suffering in silence. I'm conscious that not everyone is connected to an Inspire group. It's something we're taking very seriously as a staff team. I'm not just urging people to, to connect with one, but where they can't for whatever reason making sure we are not losing sight of them. So let's be alert. Let's make sure everyone is cared for, particularly those who find it difficult to connect online at all. Please let your Inspire group leader know, church wardens know, me or Pete know, if you can think of anyone that might be being forgotten about. And you never know how, how important a quick text could be, a quick phone call could be, just to reach out, hi, I just want to see how you're doing. Here is Jesus calling us to care for all people in the church. Not just 99%, but the full 100%. Well, the fourth and final vital characteristic that Jesus looks for in his church, from this passage at least, is the resolution of conflict. Now, this is often the go-to passage for church discipline, but given that a lot of people can feel a little freaked out um, by the idea of church discipline, first of all, I want to be absolutely clear on the purpose of it. So Jesus says in verse 15, if your brother or sister sins, go and point out their fault just between the two of you. If they listen to you, you have won them over. So important we get this right. Church discipline is never about punishment, making someone pay, making yourself feel better than someone else, greater than someone else. Never about winning an argument, but about winning them over. Restoring the relationship, pointing out the fault so they can say sorry, so they can ask for forgiveness, and so you can give that forgiveness and be reconciled and be restored and start to build up trust again. We must never lose sight of this ultimate goal. Repentance, restoration. Secondly, notice the emphasis on privacy. Verse 15 again. If your brother or sister sins, go and point out their fault just between the two of you. Again, so important we see this with the temptation for others to gossip and speculate and what really happened between the two of them. And Jesus says that is wrong. That is sinful. And that is something you need to repent of. Church discipline is a private matter between the two. 
Church discipline is never about public exposure, shame, humiliation, like some form of scarlet letter A. The only reason a conflict would get raised more publicly is if there were no repentance from the one at fault. But even then, verse 16, it is just one or two others who are then brought along. Perhaps an inspired group leader. Perhaps a couple of church wardens. Perhaps me or Pete. And only then, if there is still no repentance, might it then be communicated to the wider church, verse 17, but still in the context of restoration to win them over. And then, only then, as a final step, if there is still no repentance... After those three careful, gentle, gracious steps, all with the aim of restoration, if there is still no repentance, then Jesus says, you are to treat them as a pagan or tax collector. Which can sound very harsh. But let's just think for a moment. The author of this gospel, what was his job before Jesus called him? A tax collector. Who has Jesus come for? Pagans and tax collectors. There is always hope even here, for this person. Now, every form of church government will do this differently. But basically, what Jesus is saying here is that if someone is still unrepentant, despite going through this entire process, if they are still unrepentant through all this, then yes, something like this will need to be said. I know you say you are a Christian, but the fact that you repeatedly refuse to repent of what you've done means you are denying the very gospel that you profess. We want to restore you. We want you to remain part of the body of Christ. But until you repent, you are acting as someone who isn't a Christian, and we need to treat you as such. Now, I don't know if you're still freaked out about all this or not, but let me take for a moment a work context. If someone continually turns up late for important meetings, if someone were to continually interrupt you in a meeting, talk over you, perhaps even be rude to you, you would expect something to be done, right? I mean, in a functional work environment. Perhaps you'd go to the person yourself and say, hey, you keep, you keep doing this, what's going on? And say, oh, I'm sorry, you know, please forgive me. But if they were to laugh in your face, ignore you, well, the next step, they'd probably talk to the, the team leader, right, to your boss, and hope that she or he would deal with it and say to this person, hey, you've got, you've got to turn, turn on time for meetings, we need you there. You can't interrupt others and never act like that in your rudeness. That's unacceptable behavior. And again, you'd hope they'd hear that from the boss, say, sorry, everything's restored. But if the person is unrepentant, keeps going in it, what would happen then? Well, you tell me, wouldn't it be sort of HR get involved? Some grievance process? And if they still kept doing it, well, maybe it would end up being a sackable offence. I mean, we get this in the work contest, don't we? How much more so in the church context? Especially given all we've seen already of the need of lowliness and the avoidance of sin and the pastoral care for everyone. So don't be freaked out about this. Actually, we've got to get good at it. Not sweeping sin 
under the carpet, not giving people a free pass, but at the same time, not harboring grudges, not letting a root of bitterness set in, but being good and natural at just pointing out people's faults when they wrong us, being good at saying sorry, being good at asking for forgiveness. Now, in the case of certain serious sin done against you, it might not be appropriate to go to the person one-on-one, but go straight to the leadership. But the principle always remains the same. Always in the context of restoration. Always as privately as possible. The last thing to see about the resolution of conflict, at least from these verses, is the focus that Jesus puts on listening for the person at fault. Did you notice that? If your brother or sister sins, go and point out their fault just between the two of you. If they listen to you, you have won them over. But if they will not listen, take one or two others along so that every matter may be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. If they still refuse to listen, tell it to the church. And if they refuse to listen even to the church, treat them as you would a pagan or tax collector. Four times... Jesus places this emphasis on listening. And I think that's because it is just so easy for us to be on the defensive when someone points out one of our faults. Don't you find that? To make excuses, to blame shift, to even turn it around and make the other person feel guilty that you've even brought it up in the first place. We can be so sure of our own position, so sure of our own righteousness that we don't even allow allow for the possibility that perhaps we may be in the wrong, that perhaps there's another way of seeing it. And so we do not listen. And Jesus says that is a very dangerous position to be in. The heart is deceitful above all things, Our sin blinds us to the truth and we really need to ask God to help us listen when someone else points out our faults. You know, thanks so much for raising that. Yes, that does sound like something I could do. I really appreciate you bringing it to me. I'm really sorry. Please forgive me. Sometimes people might accuse us of something we're pretty certain we haven't done or certainly not to the extent that they are suggesting. Even then, the priority is to listen. Perhaps this is one of my blind spots. Perhaps there's another way of looking at this. Clearly there's something I'm doing which means you're even raising this. Please help me to understand what you're saying so I can see it, consider it, and if need be, Repent of it. So important to listen well at all times, but certainly in these times. Resolving conflict, church discipline, but always with the overall goal of restoration for the spiritual health of the whole body of Christ. So there we have it. Four vital characteristics that Jesus looks for in his church. This is what we need to focus on as we seek to be church, do church 
in this second lockdown, the need for holiness and the avoidance of sin. Pastoral concern for everyone and the resolution of conflict. So let's be doing that in these four weeks as we're in lockdown. Let me pray that for us now. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you so much that in the person of Jesus Christ, we have a teacher and king who gives us everything we need to know, whatever the circumstance we face, and right now in a second lockdown, how to be church to one another and be church with one another. And thank you for this really important truth. Truly, I tell you, to be lowly, to fight sin, to look out for one another, to resolve conflict quickly, privately, for the spiritual health of the church. Please, Father God, by your spirit, would you help each of us to play our role in this? And would you protect us as a church at this time and bring us out of this second lockdown spiritually more healthy? And we ask it for Jesus' sake. Amen.